You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women, so we want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers, to chefs building culinary empires, to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. So take a listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Welcome back, Brown Girls. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode in which we spoke with the one and only Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. One of my favorite lines from our interview is when she said, you can't pull transformation. This rings very true for many women of color who won races in 2018 and before, where polling showed that they were down, but on election day, they saw victory. One of these women is Ruth Buffalo. Representative Buffalo is the first Democratic Native woman to serve in the North Dakota State Legislature. Currently, 0.03% of elected officials are Native American, although Native Americans are less than 2% of the U.S. population and growing. In our chat, we discuss running for office in a conservative state, her work around public health and criminal justice, and the horrific rate at which Indigenous women are disappearing. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Representative. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. We are very, very pumped to hear from you. We know that 2018 was such a historic year for women running for office, women of color running for office, and you're one of those women that made history. You're the first Native American Democratic woman elected in the North Dakota legislature, and you won in an area that has been traditionally Republican. What did it feel like when you found out that you won? Um, It was a shock (laughs) because local uh, TV stations had already uh, pegged the incumbents as the winners. Um, You know how they do those updates, like the polls and things at the bottom of the screen. They had uh, check marks by the incumbents. And so um, we had thought we actually lost. And then one of the... um, field organizers from our Cass County Democratic Nonpartisan League office reached out and said, it's not over yet. They still need to count the absentee and early um, voting ballots. And so I still thought it was a stretch, but then, um, so yeah, it was very exciting, <laughs> but I still thought it was a stretch for us to pull off a victory. And, and then we ended up pulling off a victory. So it was, um, it was bittersweet and um, thankful for all the support that people have shown me throughout the campaign and after being elected into office. Yeah, something you mentioned is that the polling, the TVs, it shows that you weren't winning. And we had Congresswoman Ayanna Presley on a previous episode. And one of the many profound things that she said was, you can't pull transformation. And that is what you did. You really transformed that district. And there's so many women of color who are very scared to run in conservative areas. 
they just automatically think that no one's going to vote for me because I'm a Democrat, because I'm progressive, because I don't look like the majority of people in the area. Can you tell us how you just decided you were going to run and buck that notion and what advice do you have for the women of color who are thinking about running in a conservative area but dare not try to? I would say to just go for it, you know, to take courage um, because you'll be glad that you did. Um, and I remember posting a Facebook post the night before, maybe it was two nights before Election Day, in that I said, you know, win or lose, I'm still very thankful for this experience of going door to door because it showed me how many good people there are in North Dakota. You know, within these past few years, North Dakota has made uh, worldwide news regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline and use of excessive force and militarized uh, law enforcement in protecting um, economic interests for the pipeline. And so to see that North Dakotans are still very good-hearted, kind people was very refreshing to me to see that at doorsteps. And so I remember that post specifically saying, you know, that I posted a couple days before the election day is that win or lose, I'm still thankful for this experience to have met so many good people um, literally at their doorsteps and to see that North Dakota still has very good, wholesome, um, kind people. That is so great. I encounter so many women who have run for office and some of them have not won, but they say that they never regret the experience because they love what it did for them personally, but it gave them the opportunity to meet the people in their community and to see how wonderful they are and how much they care. And for those women who didn't win, it did lead for them to start to do other things in the community. And that's just some really sound advice. And the person that you ended up beating, he was actually the sponsor of a very, very bad, that's how I'm going to describe it, very, very bad voter ID law that would really disenfranchise so many Native American voters. And you're recently on Capitol Hill, where you testified about the hurdles that Native voters not only face in North Dakota, but in many states. And last year, I had the opportunity to attend a summit that was hosted by Advancing Native Political Leadership. And it was just, yeah, it was just an honor to be there. And I just sat in the back. I listened. I learned. I took a lot of notes. And we had a session that was on voter ID laws and the disenfranchisement of Native voters. And we talked a lot about gerrymandering and not having the proper ID to vote, which are things that we hear a lot when it comes to disenfranchising voters of color. But there were other things that I have learned, such as in some states, if you're mailing in your ballot, they would try to make you place extra stamps on it because it would cost more. And in some states, you would have to have a street address and not be able to use your P.O. box. And we know for a lot of natives who live on the reservations, you have a P.O. box and not a street address. So can you tell us a little bit more about these voter laws and how do you think the hearing went? And what are some ways that we can mobilize to help protect the vote of our native sisters and brothers? Um, the hearing, I was honored to be a part of it. Um, it was held at the Standing Rock Reservation. Um, I also wanted to make special note that I'm the first Democratic Nonpartisan League Native American woman elected into the 
state legislature here in North Dakota. And the hearing on voter ID laws, it, it um, was very interesting. I think we have a long ways to go throughout throughout the United States in educating uh, others, especially elected officials, on the, the true history that occurred within American soil. Um, there's still much healing that needs to take place and um, to reach a better understanding um, of reconciliation, I think, in order to move forward. So I think that's, that's key, that's important. And... Uh, there's still need, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in, in finding equity um, at the ballot for people to have access to to their their basic right to vote. You know, I believe it's a human right to vote and to have that access and to um, to be a part of the this process. You know, of, of the American dream, and that includes providing every American equal right to the ballot, to the polls, to vote. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I'm interested in in digging deeper to find out actually where the money goes from counties to help tribal communities in obtaining street addresses. Um, there needs to be more transparency across the board. When we look at tribal reservations, we have a higher rate of felonies within the exterior boundaries of an Indian reservation because any crime that is committed by a tribal member of a federally recognized tribe goes directly to the federal level then becomes a felony, whereas if it was committed off the reservation at a county or district court, it would. there are cases where it would have been a misdemeanor, but having been committed on the reservation by a tribal member, it, it's a felony. And so many of the housing authority criteria to, for people to live in um, housing, they cannot be felons. And so we have a huge huge shortage of housing to begin with on reservations and also high number of felons. And then, um, so that contributes to maybe not an address or their own address or just, it's just very complex and we need to address a lot of the systematic challenges that are currently in place that not much people understand. One of the other things that I want to talk about is the work that you have done in public health. So you have a master's degree in public health. And when learning more about you, I remember when I found out that you were running, I was just saying, oh, I really hope she wins. She seems really dynamic. That like a lot of women of color, you have had unfortunate instances with the healthcare industry. And what drove you to care about public health is a story I think many of our listeners can relate to, and is that you had a family member who was misdiagnosed at a clinic and you almost lost her. And we know that for women of color, our health concerns are very often misdiagnosed or in some cases ignored. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how it has helped shape the work that you do around healthcare, not only from wanting to work in the healthcare industry, but to some of the work that you have now done in the state house? Yeah, so when I was a young girl at the young age of 10 years old, our, um, my five-year-old sister um, was misdiagnosed with a health condition. And um, after being turned away, um, I believe on the third time, my mom decided to drive 27 miles to the nearest um, county hospital. And from there, the ambulance rushed her to the next level of care um, in another 
town that was about 27 miles away. And then once they arrived, they had emergency surgery and we almost lost her. Um, and so we're thankful that she's still alive and healthy and a mother now. Um, but just from seeing that experience at a young age, it prompted me to set out to pursue a, a, a medical doctor degree. <laughs> and then, um, but so I kind of came full circle in, in getting a, obtaining a master of public health and wanting to work further upstream in more of the preventative side of things. And so that just is a little background of um, who I am and what um, the work that I'm doing and just seeing things firsthand of wanting to make things better for everyone so that nobody has to go through further tragedies and especially if things can be prevented that's the big the big goal is trying to prevent things from happening um and so I, um years later we lost our baby sister um she didn't survive a car crash a drunk driver had hit them head on and so that again was another very devastating thing for us to experience um being the big big sister um and always wanting to try to protect my younger siblings that completely um, blindsided us. And so there again, um, found the gumption to make phone calls, get, you know, transferred around multiple times, but finally was able to, we would like to think that we assisted in getting that road widened because um, that highway is, was known as the most deadliest, one of the most deadliest highways in, in the U.S. because there are so many fatalities on that specific highway that we lost our baby sister on so always just trying to find solutions and and to make sure that things like that don't happen again you know especially if they can be prevented so that kind of drives a lot of my policy work and um, I will say when I was at um, NDSU getting my master of public health one thing that resonated with me as our instructor would say poor health is a result of poor policy and so that totally, um, I believe it 100% and believe that through policy, we have the opportunity to improve the health and quality of life for everyone. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you have been doing since you've been elected to help improve public health in North Dakota? Right. So um, North Dakota is a little bit different in that we meet every other year. So I'm, I'm currently serving a four-year term and Within this four-year term, we will have two legislative sessions and then two interim sessions. And so I introduced uh, eight pieces of legislation, seven of which passed. Um, the one piece of legislation that that died or did not pass was a, a child care assistance bill that would have um, would have reinstated the state median income of 85%. And that's the level that it was at two years ago, well, in 2016, before it was cut. And now it's currently at 60%. And as a result of that drop uh, for the state median income level for eligibility for the child care assistance, 490 children were kicked off of child care assistance. And we know that child care assistance also means work um, access to the workforce. And so it was a way to try to help our workforce, our working families. And so I'm still trying to find ways, creative, innovative ways to support our working families. 
Um, the other bills that did pass or that were successful included um, data collection. Uh, it went through this interesting process of a series of amendments and being hoghoused, mean, meaning being totally um, amended. But I'm good with the amendments because it still was a win-win for everyone. Um, so we, the state of North Dakota will now be starting a state repository of missing people, including other groups such as indigenous population and uh, re recording the tribal affiliation. Because what we found throughout this process was, was that North Dakota does not collect any data on missing people. They do collect data on homicides, but nothing on missing people. Um, the other bill, another bill that passed was law enforcement to receive training on missing and murdered Indigenous people. And then two other bills focusing on human trafficking, prevention and awareness, um, providing this training to school administrators and teachers and also to hotel establishments. And then a resolution urging Congress to pass Savannah's Act and a uh, comprehensive study to further examine missing and murdered Indigenous people and human trafficking cases. And then another bill, that a student dress code bill, that will prohibit school districts and school boards from allowing students, high school students to wear eagle feathers and eagle plumes at high school graduations. That is such a long list of accomplishments, particularly for a freshman legislator. And work with lots of women who are running for office. They actually say that the first year or the first session is kind of the hardest because you're figuring out where the bathroom is, but how to get things passed. And you were able to do so much. So can you tell us a little bit just about your mindset? Did you feel a little alone going into the state house, particularly being the only Native Democratic woman? Or were you just thinking, you know what? I'm going for it. The people put me here to get things done, and I'm just going to build a plane while flying it. <laughs> yes, the latter. <laughs> I just felt like I had to go for it um, and cease the moment because, you know, it's, it is a, such a um, fast turnaround time from when you, you win your race and then you get sworn in a month later, and then a month later, then you start your new job at the Capitol um, in Bismarck. And so there wasn't much turnaround time at all. And I do really feel that I hit the ground running um, and because, you know, going into this legislative session, um, I just primarily built on the work that I was, the community work that I was was doing already. And that, that um, the, the thing about community work is that's what kind of, made me apprehensive to take the dive into running for office because I didn't want my community work to be discredited because oftentimes you'll hear, you know, you'll just, you hear of politicians doing things um, for the wrong reasons, you know, just to be in the spotlight or to not really, it's not where their heart is, but they're doing something, you know, we see that I've seen it, you know, and so I didn't want myself to be put in that light and I didn't want my what I felt to be good, meaningful community work and advocacy to um, to be hurt as a result of running for office. But I knew that running for office was a way to help bring all of us forward um, for safer communities and stronger communities, you know. So 
um, that was like, I guess, the healthy risk that I, I took. And so a lot of my the legislation that was passed um, were built off of recommendations, conversations that were had from our local coalition, our local task force here, focusing on missing and murdered Indigenous women and human trafficking. And you hit on something that I really think is important is women taking the step from being that activist, that community leader, to being the elected official. Because a lot of women do feel that once they're in elected office, they have to let go of that activism piece. But it really is just melting the two together and being in that elected office and being able to do more. So I really want to thank you so much for what you said on that piece because it is really important for women to hear that from a woman who was able to do it. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes making a difference means putting money where your mouth is. Small dollar donations can combine to create big results. In the 2018 election cycle, small dollar donors gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns or organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations, big and small, to flourish. Candidates and organizations using ActBlue know that they're using the best. ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and incredible customer service. Want to use your phone? ActBlue's tools are optimized for mobile. Plus, ActBlue is always working to improve its offerings. ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. Some of the legislation you talked about really had a lot to do with criminal justice, and you also have a degree in criminal justice. So you introduced and passed legislation around human trafficking, co-sponsoring legislation to keep children safe. But what I really want to do is dive into this part around missing and murdered Indigenous people, particularly women. You're working on this issue. Congresswoman Deb Holland has been very vocal about bringing attention to this issue. And it's because we do have strong Indigenous women at the forefront. We are seeing growing national attention and pending legislation at the state and federal level. So could you actually just dive in a little bit more into the legislation that you passed, why you passed it. Also use this as an opportunity for our listeners to learn how they can use their individual power to raise awareness around this issue. Right. Um, So yes, um, the legislation kind of looked at it more of a package, even though, um, you know, there's some language that is specific to the indigenous population, but then there's also language that is... is, um, for it's not specifically related to indigenous people um, because human trafficking affects all groups of people. Um, But what we're seeing at the local level is that there are um, high rates of indigenous people being uh, targeted for human trafficking. We also here in the Fargo area have a high rate of homeless, of the homeless pop- population. 
And within the homeless population demographics, um, the Native Americans' uh, indigenous population is is the most represented among our homeless population here in the Fargo area. And so it's definitely an area that needs special attention. Um, and so furthermore, our Native American women are, um, we, you know, just the statistics of violence, experiencing violence, sexual assault are just off the charts. Um, I believe... Um, there's so many different statistics out there, but I know Native American women are um, murdered 10 times the national average of more than any other group. And it's not to necessarily play oppression Olympics or anything. It's just stating the facts of like, there's some, there's some serious work that needs to be done here. Um, and it cannot continue to be brushed under the rug. And I know former Senator Heidi Heikamp had led a social media initiative a couple years ago on the last day of Na National Native American Heritage Month called hashtag not invisible. And so people have really um, taken to that comment or that uh, those words because oftentimes our Indigenous women are um, they f fall through the cracks of justice. And so really throughout this legislation at the local level and at the national level, I believe many are trying to raise awareness and to um, let the world know this is a sense of urgency and, and it cannot happen any anymore. You know, we often say, you know, not one more or no more stolen sisters. Um, and as a mother, it really hits home and as a community member here in Fargo, having witnessed firsthand a family suffer from the loss of their uh, young daughter who was eight months along in her pregnancy, um, it's devastating. And so we just want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so it's, again, looking at preventative measures or how can we further enhance the good work that is already being done. You know, like in the state of North Dakota, they did very good work already um, in prior legislative sessions in establishing a human trafficking commission. So a lot of my bills are basically building off of that existing structure and just tapping into existing work that's already being done to try to further uh, thread the needle towards justice and, and safety in our communities. No, that is great. And thank you so much. For and I, I think I got a little carried away and I forgot. I set the phone down. Oh. <laughs> I was like moving my hands and everything. And then I realized the phone was sitting on my lap. So I'm oh, sorry. I'm, I know it still picked up the audio. I know what that's okay. like, but I, I appreciate that. I love that because just listening to you, you can tell how passionate you are about this issue. And we're just so lucky to have someone like you and Congresswoman Holland bringing awareness to this very important issue. And it is something that we need to be paying more attention to. So I Thank want you. to end our conversation by asking you one final question. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? <laughs> um, I would say, you know, stay true to who you are and, um, just really take care of yourself, you know, and um, be ready, you know, be ready in the sense of, you know, you might be called upon someday to lead a prayer, you know, at a community event or 
say a few words. And I kind of learned that early on. I would say maybe about 10 years ago, I was asked to say a speech, you know, a few words. And and so I remember sharing with people, like, always have a speech prepared, you know. (laughs) So I would say, you know, just be ready and to really continue to um, find ways to grow in um, our personal and professional development, you know, find every opportunity you can to further a goal or a dream that you have um, in whichever direction or whichever platform or sector that's in. So I would just say really, really take care of yourself, you know, be good to yourself and um, just stay true to who you are. And yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing is really being able to um, be comfortable in your own skin and to really truly love yourself, (laughs) you know, um, because it's important. So such sound advice. Definitely love what you said about having that stump speech ready. That is very important, especially if you plan to run for office one day. Yes. <laughs> yep. Thank you. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Representative Buffalo. We really appreciate it. And thank you again for everything that you are doing. And congratulations on your much deserved success. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us today. Thank you. It wasn't until 1924 that Native Americans were granted citizenship and not until after World War II that states started lifting restrictions for Native Americans to vote. In 2019, our Indigenous sisters and brothers are still fighting to be seen and heard. You can support organizations such as Advanced Native Political Leadership, a project that is born of the need to have Native American representation in elected and appointed offices throughout the country, and Indigenous Women Rising, which focuses on honoring Native and Indigenous peoples' inherent right to equitable and culturally safe health options through accessible health education, resources, and advocacy. I truly hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Representative Buffalo, and we hope you'll stay tuned for next week's episode.